some of that was being coached and taught across the agencies. One of the missionary friends, he went into the local mosque to pray with his Muslim friends and even bow towards the Mecca. And, and I said to him, isn't that idolatry? You're bowing towards Kaaba, the black stone. And he said, no, I'm doing it in the name of Jesus. Because we come from this, this history of where the Korean church compromised during the Japanese occupation, we do not want to bring any sort of compromise into the heart of the local church. In our case, working with Muslims in Central Asia. Welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast, a podcast for Christians spooked by the growing hostility in the culture today. We will tackle a range of topics from current events, persecution, missions, and what it means to be the church. You will gain valuable insights from those experienced working with persecuted Christians around the world, insights we all need to chew on in these strange days. Together, may we help the church stand. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast. I'm Andy Coleman, your host, and thank you for joining us once again. Today, I am joined uh, once again by James Cha, who shared with us in our last episode about Korea, but we're, we're turning our focus a little bit in today's session. Uh, today's session is going to be from Korea to the Muslim world, Muslim ministry and spiritual concerns over Christian compromise. In our last episode, James Cha shared a lot of amazing insight into Christianity in Korea and how that history played out, both the amazing ways and also the really sobering ways um, but compromise played a key role in that discussion. And so we want to learn a little bit more about his work among Muslim peoples around the world and also touching on this issue of compromise so that all of us can be better informed as Christians about what is going on in the Christian landscape all across the globe. So, James, thank you so much for taking more of your time to share with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a great privilege to be back with you, Andy. Well, thank you very much for blessing our, our listeners. Like I was telling everybody in the introduction, that they really do need to go back for the context into the last episode to hear about your account of Christian history in Korea, and also just how important that history is for us to reclaim. Um, that context is so critical for any Christian that might be unstable, unsteady by the shifting world, the cultural landscape around them. It's so helpful for them to just have more vantage points to see how their faith applies and being faithful in difficult times. But we just briefly mentioned it in that last episode about how you went into ministry among Muslims. How did you come to serve in that role? You touched on it before, but flesh that out a little bit for us. Sure. While I was in college, I was studying engineering, and there was a conference to reach out to the Muslims and teaching us about what the Muslims believe and how to reach out to them. And I think it was at that conference that the Lord just drew my heart to serve him as a missionary to Muslims. And I didn't know too much about the Muslims at the time. This was back in 80s, right? 1984. Um, and my wife and I, the Lord brought us together. She was called into ministry at a young age. And one of the ways that the Lord confirmed our calling was 
that we made a short trip to Uzbekistan. That was the country that our sending church had in a way adopted as a focus for our mission movement or mission strategy for the church. And we went in the beginning of year 2000 to Uzbekistan for about 10 days. And we sensed that the Lord just opened the door for us to join a team with pioneers, but also for me to secure a visa entry as a professor. I had worked 10 years as an electrical engineer. My wife worked 10 years as a pharmacist in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so we were bringing with us that experience academic career experience onto the field. So going into the Muslim country in that way was God's leading. And that's pretty remarkable. I mean, that's just just that step of faith going into a distant land like that. That's why I'm always excited to hear from missionaries and those that served overseas, just how they took that step. But I also appreciate what you shared just about how your church had adopted the country of Uzbekistan I just love that, and I just put that plug out there for any, maybe even just smaller churches out there that are looking for a way to maximize their focus on the missions field. What a wonderful way to do that by adopting a country or maybe adopting a people group or one of these people groups in the 1040 window, an unreached or underreached people group. It's just a, a wonderful exercise in faith and just taking ownership over a small bit of what God is doing in the kingdom and partnering with that, even if all, as a small church, you're able to do is just really pray and get smart about that people group and and what's going on there. What a wonderful exercise to do. So you were serving in Uzbekistan, and I'm sure that had its challenges, but also its blessings. And in our previous episode, when we were talking about uh, the history of the church in Korea— we talked about something called the, the Shinto Compromise amongst the churches in Korea. Did you ever come across themes of compromise or where you saw things that arose, things that put up a check in your spirit, that something like this was playing out in your ministry? Yes. Yes, I did, Andy. And it, initially going into Uzbekistan, of course, our hearts are—we want to lead the Muslims to Christ and— you know, all the more, I, I know we just, um, in a way, we remembered 9-11 just a few days ago, the 20th year. Yeah. We were right there in Uzbekistan when 9-11 happened. And it was it came as a shock to us. At first, we were living with a, a Russian-speaking landlord who was Tajik. He actually worked for KGB for 20 years. So that's a long story. How does a missionary live with an ex-KGB agent? But that was God's leading. <laughs> And he brought us to his home where the news was on, and it was all in Russian. And when we saw the two planes crashing into, um, or the second plane crashing into the World Trade Center, I, we thought it was a movie. And he kept saying, no, it's not a movie. This is really happening. And, and then he, he began to say, tell us how terrible the Taliban, the, the Afghans are. He actually fought for the Russians in Afghanistan. Mm. And at the time, we got some emails and phone calls from the U.S. Embassy to pull out from our city because we were only a few hours north of Afghanistan. But our landlord, he said, no, I will protect you. I have networks. If any terrorist threat comes to our city, I will protect you. And so we decided to stay because we also sensed that the Holy Spirit wanted us to stay. And five members of his household came to Christ. So 
it's amazing that if we don't move in fear and we stay where God wants us to stay, there's a reason why he wants us to stay. Mm-hmm. And there may be some lost sheep they need to be found. So that's, that's not what we were looking for, but the Lord brought them anyway. Um, and so I just want to encourage all of us serving in hostile places, even in school settings now with public schools, with all these different agendas that liberal whatever leaders may want to put in, that you stand your ground and who knows, uh, God may bring the lost souls to himself through right. you. And not moving in fear. Yeah. Yeah. But I want to move on to this topic of what we saw on the mission field. And I want to start off with a passage that Paul teaches us. It's this concept of becoming someone like the local people. So for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. And then he goes on to say, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law to win them to Christ. And I don't think he's saying that, oh, to the prostitutes, I'm going to become like a prostitute and commit adultery or immorality to win them to Christ. That's not what he's saying. So there are clear boundaries. Mm-hmm. There are clear moral boundaries or biblical boundaries we don't cross. And we call this contextualization. So this realm of contextualization is making ourselves, that's the person, or the message relevant to the people that we are committed to, that we want to reach out to with the gospel. Mm -hmm. So simply a definition for contextualization, it's the way in which the missionaries communicate or apply the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of Scripture to make them more relevant to the host culture. Because if we do not contextualize properly, the message becomes irrelevant. For instance, to a group of of people who never understood the cross as a means of execution, just preaching the cross itself without explaining that Jesus was executed, was punished on the cross, then they don't have the full message of the gospel. Mm -hmm. If you overly contextualize, meaning you import or include too much of whatever is in the local culture, including their religious beliefs or connotations, then it creates syncretism. So in our previous podcast, the syncretism was, I mentioned that briefly, was ancestor worship, where our people, Koreans, venerate ancestor spirits, and some of that came into the Korean church. Mm -hmm. And that needed to be dealt with right away. But at the time, maybe the missionaries and pastors really did not know how to handle ancestor worship. So it has lingered on. Thank God. Most devout or evangelical or Protestant Christians have now cut that out in our tradition or in our faith. So there are two aspects of contextualization. One is for the person, and you can also call that incarnation. For instance, Jesus was incarnational. He became a man to communicate with us, to live with us, to display God's love and truth, both through his life, his actions, and his his speech. Well, you also want missionaries to be incarnational. So if you are going to Africa, if you are going to China or any other country, you kind of want to dress like them. You want to learn their language. Right. You want to learn their culture. You want to live like them. You don't want to stand out. You, you want to be accepted. Now, serving in Uzbekistan, 
here's how it comes up. So in America, when we pray, we either bring our hands together and right in front of us, or sometimes we, you know, get down on our knees and we, we are hunched over. That's a mode of prayer, a gesture of prayer. Well, in Uzbekistan, when we went, the way that the Muslims pray is that they have their hands open to the sky as if they're receiving from, from their God, Allah. And then at the end of the prayer, they say, Omin. And as they say, Omin, which is like our Amen, they bring their two hands across their face and down their chin. And so this gesture is a gesture of prayer. So at first, the missionaries going in thought, oh, this is a good gesture. It's a gesture of prayer. Let's take that on. So we did. And then we began to ask around, what does that whole gesture mean? Because form has a meaning. Mm-hmm. And the, the gesture of opening your hands to the sky means you're receiving from God, which we agree with. But then the second part, as they say, omen, and they bring their two hands across their face, down their cheeks and towards the chin, like as if to kind of caress your beard, we asked an old Quranic teacher and he said, it means by the beard of Muhammad, which means you're offering this prayer by the beard of Muhammad. And so we stopped with that gesture because we want the glory to go to Jesus. Yes. You know, as we are praying, we're praying in the name of Jesus in the local language. And so when when God answers prayers, our prayers in Jesus' name, then the glory goes to him. Yes. But if we also bring our hands across our face, down our face at the end, this gesture of by the beard of Muhammad, then the glory also goes to Muhammad, that he gets mm-hmm. the credit for answering our prayer. And from there, we begin to understand, wow, because forms have meaning, we need to be very careful about how we pray what we say, and what parts of Uzbek or Tajik or Afghan culture that we bring into our lives, because they are loaded with religious meanings, and we need to understand these embedded meanings in their forms. Great points. Also, when we're talking about contextualization, I think it's helpful because in mission circles, these conversations will play out. Uh, But I think for a lot of our listeners who are not familiar with missions, who haven't been on the missions field themselves, some of this is new. One of those terms that will get discussed at times is the C scale. That's, That's a scale trying to catalog how contextualized a church is or a message or a practice like you're describing. Would you be able to just describe that briefly for us? What is that C scale? Sure. So C scale, it's that contextualization level scale. C1, we'll start with that, is basically little or no contextualization. So let's say I go over to a nation like Sudan in Africa, and the church that sent me gave me a lot of money. So I build a church just like what I would build in America or in Korea or your any your home country with a steeple, with a cross, with pews. And I preach in English and I have a translator who translates for me into the local language. Mm -hmm. That's C1. Is that effective? Well, maybe not as effective, but it can still win people over to Christ. Mm -hmm. And so I know in the mission circle, sometimes we 
downplay or we you know kind of denigrate people who are doing C1. But God does bring people to Christ through C1, this approach. A great example is Reverend Billy Graham. Mm. I think he preached most almost all the time in English. Maybe he may know a few other foreign phrases. When he came to Korea in 1975, I think that was the year, over a million Koreans came to his evangelism campaign and 10% came to Christ, 100,000 in one campaign. I don't think there's any Korean pastor that has brought 100,000 South Koreans in one campaign. So that glory still goes to uh, Billy Graham. And it's because the Holy Spirit is the one who used Billy Graham. Yeah, that's setting. So I don't think we should say, oh, C1 never works. I disagree. It can work, and it's just up to the Holy Spirit to use whom and how. So that's C1. C2, it's the approach of, again, bringing over what looks like foreign. And we've seen this in Central Asia, even in Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan, where whether it's Koreans or even Russians, Russians bring their Baptist tradition and they build a church just like a Russian Baptist church. Everything is in Russian, which is one of the, it's, it is the national language or commerce language in Central Asian Muslim countries. So almost everyone speaks Russian anyway. Everything is done in Russian. There are pews and people do come to Christ. So we visited churches like this in Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan, and you find a mix of Uzbeks, Tajiks, Kyrgyz, Uyghurs, and Russians. So these Muslims are coming to Christ through C2. C3, contextualization level three, is what we practiced. It's house church model. So we meet in homes, which is what the local people do anyway. They have a mosque, but we, you know, we're not setting up something like the mosque. We could not register buildings anyway in the local right. language. So we would meet in a home. Everyone sits on the floor, men on one side, women on the other side. This is their normal culture, normal custom. And then we everything is done in the local language. And that's Uzbek or Tajik. There's no translation. We simply do everything in the local language. C4, contextualization level four, is going one step further. So now you have a house church of local believers, and they come together and they start using possibly permissible forms of the local religion. So in this case, Islam. So you may have a house church that uses the Uzbek language, but they fast during Ramadan, which is the Muslim month of fasting, but they do it in a Christian way. So because they are used to fasting, they want to just celebrate this month of fasting, but in a Christian way where you're not feasting at night, you're just basically maybe one meal a day, you decide to fast. Now, this is where there's some caution to this, because in Islam, before the Muslims pray in every surah or every chapter of the Quran, except for one, it says, Bismillah ir-Rahman ir-Rahim which means in the name of Allah, the merciful and compassionate. So they start their work by saying this. They start their meals with this. They start any tasks or projects with this, meaning they want the blessing of Allah upon what, it, what they're about to start. Now, with our house church members, as soon as they came to Christ, they already knew that there's going to be a difference between Christianity and Islam. And so we remember getting a 
set of Bible study material that was produced by another missionary team in Uzbekistan in a different city. And it had already been translated into Uzbek, good material, proven Bible study guide. So we decided to use it. But right at the top in Uzbek language was this, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. And our own disciples looked at that and asked us, why is this in here? And we didn't know what this saying was. And we said, well, what does it say? And because the whole phrase is Arabic, this is what we remember to be Islam. Whenever we hear this, this is something of Islam. And so they were offended. They said, I thought we left Islam altogether. So we decided to scratch it out and blacken it out. And we never used that phrase again. But C4 churches do use phrases like this because they think, well, the meaning in the name of Allah, the merciful and compassionate, what's wrong with that? And then C5, contextualization level five, are communities of Muslims for Jesus who continue to meet and observe the forms of Islam, but now they're doing it in the name of Jesus. For instance, in this group, usually encouraged by the foreign missionaries, many of them from America, so it's not something that was started by the local believers, it was started by the foreigners, and they would tell the local believers when you come to Jesus, don't tell people that you're a Christian. Tell them you're still a Muslim following Jesus, following Isa. Isa is the name of Jesus in the Quran. Basically, you are following the traditions and the forms of Islam, but do it in the name of Jesus. And that way you can keep going to the mosque to pray, especially on Friday. People don't suspect that you have left Islam, but you can stay kind of under the radar and you can win people to Christ through that way. So two things. One, you're not persecuted because you're not cut off from the community and you, know, you still have the relationships. And two, because you have those relationships, you can share the good news with the people in the mosque, with your friends and your family. Keep your identity secret. And then if there's a larger group of people, then you meet together in this Muslims for Jesus type of gathering. Contextualization level six, C6, is secret underground believers, whether in a Muslim country like Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, or even in North Korea, the believers do not identify themselves publicly to anyone. They just stay in hiding. Yeah. They may let their own family members know, but even that is a risk. So we see this as a temporary stage, phase. Right. Eventually, they need to let someone know that they have chosen to follow Christ. So those are the six different levels of contextualization. Right. And I always thought that C6 was kind of an outlier. It didn't really fit in that spectrum. It really describes something else, somebody that's a, a secret believer, but it's it's not that they're conforming that with any other kind of cultural context or anything like that necessarily. But we do start to traipse into some dangerous waters, I guess, at the C4 level, but at the C5 level, there there could be some issues, like we discussed last week, of compromise, of of syncretism, of fusing two faiths together uh, that, that may be very problematic. And the C5 can also describe, correct me if I'm wrong, but that can describe people not just from Muslim backgrounds, but that can play out in Hindu contexts and Buddhist contexts as well. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, I think this insider movement or C5 movement, and there are other names, Common Ground Movement, Jesus and the Quran Movement, which are being played out in America as well. 
on our soil. It's, uh, it started, I think, predominantly with the missions thrust towards the Muslim nations, just because it was hard to see fruit. And, yes. it, and again, it's a man's way of how can we see more of a movement? But that's all up to the Holy Spirit. It's, that's up to, up to God. When right. Jesus returns, we cannot speed it up just because we have a movement going. But it was seeking mass numbers of conversion. And that's where it, it began. But right. you're right. There are now Hindus. There are ministries or missionaries who are encouraging Hindus to stay within their religion. I'm a Hindu for Christ. I'm a Buddhist for Christ. Right. And I think there, there's been many cases of missionaries going to a Buddhist temple in Thailand. And this one missionary, foreign missionary from America, he he would chant at the temple. And so the Buddhist monks came and said, wow, you know, you're a foreigner, you became one of us, and are you, are you a Buddhist? And this young man said, no, I'm a Buddhist. Well, I'm a Buddhist, but I'm a Buddhist who follows Jesus. So he's promoting this kind of approach, but he's been chanting and then bowing at the right. of uh, Buddha, which to me is idolatry, that you're breaking the first and second commandment. That's a sin against our God. And... In some ways, again, listeners need to go back to the last episode where we talked about the compromise in Korea. It seems like a lot of this rests on human wisdom, our own rationalization rather than faithfulness. It's almost like a choreographed strategy that's been implemented. You mentioned it was it was not developed locally. This isn't something that local people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ crafted. Instead, this is something that's been born by people coming into the country by Westerners or whoever. It's been kind of developed and honed in certain seminary circles, and this is being exported into these nations and these people groups. I've even heard accounts where missionaries might find local people who came to faith in Christ, and they were actually, the missionaries encouraged them and successfully had them convert back into Islam so that they could return to the mosque and be, as you described, somebody that's still in that setting— but it leads to a lot of confusion. I'm concerned that it leads people into a sort of spiritual no-man's land where you're not really following Christ faithfully and you're not really a trusted part of that other community either. You're something different. Is that consistent with your experience? How have you seen this play out? Yes. When we first went into Central Asia, in year 2000, some of that was being coached and taught across the agencies. So when I was in college, I was involved with Navigators, which is a great college ministry organization. But on the field, I found that the Navigator missionaries were practicing this and pushing this. And so one of the missionary friends, a Navigator missionary, he went into the local mosque to pray with his Muslim friends and even bow towards the Mecca. And And I said to him, isn't that idolatry? You're bowing towards Kaaba, the black stone. And he said, no, I'm doing it in the name of Jesus. And for me, I think as I shared last week, because we come from this really, this history of where the Korean church compromised during the Japanese occupation with Shinto compromise, and it resulted in 70 years of separation from North and South Korea, which Even in modern history, there's been no country that has been closed for this long a period. Even Soviet Union fell apart. East and West Germany uh, were reunited. Cuba was never closed, not like North Korea has been closed. 
And we believe there's a, a reason, a spiritual reason, not political reason, why God has kept North Korea so close for three generations of ruthless leaders. And it, I believe it is because of this compromise that the pastors made during the Japanese occupation. So my wife and I, we do not want to bring any sort of compromise into the heart of the local church, right. in our case, working with Muslims in Central Asia. So in the beginning, we began to hear this approach called camel method. And the camel method, if you're a missionary working with Muslims, you understand that it's just using verses from the Quran and then bringing your listeners to Christ. Well, what happens is when missionaries voluntarily use the Quran to start teaching about Jesus, you're in a way validating what is written in the Quran. And it's, it's a real slippery slope and you need wisdom. If they bring it up, yes, we can kind of use that, what they brought, and then bring it to the Gospels, bring it to Scripture, and then give further understanding of God's truth using the Scripture. But you have approaches now where people are missionaries or evangelists, even in America, who have studied the Quran, who open up the Quran to teach about Jesus, hoping that because they're staying in this holy book of Islam, that these Muslims will, who believe in the Quran as the book of God, will somehow find truth about Jesus. I disagree with that. I think the best place to find Christ is in, in the scriptures. So in the beginning, we did use this camel method. And after a while, we realized that our friends who are seekers, they were confused. So they would ask, so what do you think about Muhammad? And eventually we would have to tell them, well, we don't believe Muhammad is a prophet of God. And they would kind of be puzzled or confused, or some would be upset and they would leave the conversation altogether. But the offense of the gospel, the Lord has to deal with that, the message that Christ is the only Messiah, Jesus is the only Messiah. So in the end, as we started our house church, we decided that if a local Muslim would come to Christ, they need to repent. And repentance is turning away from whatever direction you're going, turning away from Islam, traditions of Islam, turning away from Muhammad, rejecting him as a prophet of God, and turning to Christ, turning to scripture, turning to the finished work of Christ on the cross. And because we made that clear, we lost some seekers. They, mm -hmm. they could not turn away from Islam. And they said, no, I, we don't want this message. But of those who came to Christ, about 60 during our first three, four years in Uzbekistan, 60 came to Christ. They all turned their back on Islam to come to Christ. Mm -hmm. That was the path we prescribed for them. Well, about a couple years after we started our house church, one of our disciples came to us with a lot of excitement. And um, she told us, thank you so much for being honest with us. Because she met up with a friend who was a disciple of another house church movement. And in that house church, they were using this approach of mixing the Quran and the scripture and kind of like encouraging them to keep their Muslim tradition, but only selecting passages in the Quran that seemed safe, that seemed like they were in agreement with scripture. So that's how they were doing their Bible slash Quran study for about two years. And then after two years, 
the leader of this group, the foreign missionary said, okay, starting today, we're not going to use the Quran anymore. Mm. And so the disciples asked, why not? And he said, well, it's not a book from God. So finally, he told them the truth. And, and then he said, you know, Muhammad is not a prophet. So they started asking, so what do you think about Muhammad? Well, he's not a prophet of God. So this whole group of disciples just got up and left. They mm. felt like they were deceived. Yes. And I, I heard that a lot. You can see it. it. It was deceptive. Yes. And they felt like it was a, a bait and switch. And you describe the reactions. We're told that the gospel is going to be offensive to unbelievers. We're told that Christ is a stumbling block, and we shouldn't be shocked when we share this and we encounter things like that. But you're right. Uh, if you're forthright and honest, people can make a clear distinction and move spiritually towards the light. Mm-hmm. We will return to the podcast momentarily, but first, a word from our sponsor. Being a Christian today can be hard. This is true if you live in a heavily persecuted country like Iran, or areas where cultural pressures against Christians are growing fast, like America and Europe. Fortunately, none of us have to stand alone. We are part of a giant body, one huge spiritual family that spans the globe. That is the church. The Christian Emergency Alliance is committed to helping the church stand, regardless of the pressures to come. As a 501c3 nonprofit, the Christian Emergency Alliance strives to help our spiritual family when persecution hits. We also strengthen the church by supporting ministry that makes Christ famous, defends biblical truth, and prepares fellow believers for challenges ahead. You have the opportunity to make a huge impact in this work today. Become a monthly financial ally of the Christian Emergency Alliance by signing up at christianemergency.com. Your support of $25 a month or a gift in any amount will bless those who need help in these darkening days. Help the church stand today, tomorrow, and in the days to come. Register today at www.christianemergency.com. And now, back to the show. I wanted to just briefly, because it's kind of a, a side note, but it's related to this, and then we can return to this this topic a little bit more. But you're describing insider movements, which is kind of funny because they're developed mostly by outsiders, but they're called insider movements. But our listeners might not be aware, but there's also something called insider Bible translations. Insider Bible translations. Can you speak to that briefly? Sure. We thank God for those that are equipped and um, have the resources and the capacity to translate Scripture into all different tongues. And as you translate Scripture into the local language, you have to understand every aspect of the language and even the culture. So a good example, I think, of a good translation is in the Korean Bible. In Jesus says in John chapter 635, he says, I am the bread of life. Okay. Well, in the Korean culture or society at the time when the Bible was first translated into our language in late 1800s, we didn't have bread. We didn't eat bread. And yes, there was a Western word for bread that was somehow infused into our society, but it described something that no one ate and we didn't even know. We just knew that Westerners ate that, but Koreans didn't eat that. So the Bible translators decided, oh, in order for the Koreans to understand who Jesus is, let's use the word rice cake, which Koreans love. So in Korean, Jesus says he is the rice cake of life, which similar kind of entity in terms of food, but Koreans love and celebrate what rice cake is. And it doesn't change the meaning of what Jesus is saying. He's saying rice cake is the sustenance of Korean people. He will be that for us. 
that's, I believe, a translation that was done well, where in reaching out to the Muslims, here's the problem. Muslims are offended that Jesus is the son of God because Muhammad wrongly understood that the title Jesus being the son of God means that God had sex with Mary. So God the father had sex with God the mother who was Mary and Jesus was born, which is not what we believe. But he was wrongly influenced by the teaching of, I think there was a sect group called Coloridians few centuries before Muhammad's time where they really elevated Mary to the place of divinity so that she became divine and and so that kind of wrong influence came into Muhammad's thinking. And so he said, Jesus is not the son of God. He hates the title. And that's what the Muslims are offended by the title. So Bible translators, many from the West, when they translate scripture into the local language of a Muslim people group, and they don't want to offend them, they would say this in John three sixteen, where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, instead of saying that, they would say, for God so loved the world that he sent his Messiah, or he sent his beloved, mm -hmm. that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, we do not have the right to change the divine familial terms. These were terms decided upon by the Godhead. You know, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit these are terms of affection that God would say, this is my son. When Jesus was baptized, this is my son whom I love. Mm -hmm. You know, what right do we have to change those terms just because someone is offended, a human being or people group are offended? So this is where we call it Muslim compliant translation. And again, it's hoping to minimize rejection, hoping to minimize any obstacle for Muslims coming to Christ. So we change our approach, we change our message, so that that can happen. Well, I appreciate you summarizing all of that. When things really start to get strange is when, instead of shaping the message, we're instead now changing the message. Substantively, we're changing the familial terms, uh, son, the son of God, and those efforts. And it does cause real problems in discipleship, it causes problems in theology that you use Scripture to, to reference. So it's a very important issue for us to be paying attention to. Do you think that churches and individuals who are excited about frontier missions, they're excited about the gospel getting into these difficult lands, uh, lots of challenges? I mean, it's, it's no small task sharing Christ in, in some of these countries, but do you think most of those individuals and donors are aware that, that the strategy being used in those contexts are insider? And I'm not trying to say that all strategies are. I'm just saying that those that do employ insider strategies, do you think that by and large, those that are supporting the efforts back at home are aware of that? No, no, I, I don't think so. I, then that is why it's important to understand and talk to your missionary friends in detail and it does fall upon the, the shoulders of missions pastor or, if, or missions coordinator at the church to understand all these different strategies and even the controversies on the mission field so that you do not support whether it's the wrong Bible translation or the wrong approach. And so right now, even in Northern Virginia, there is a pastor who goes to a mosque to pray with his Muslim friends in order to win them to Christ. 
So he's been influenced by what started on the mission field, and now it's being taught here back in the U.S. And even pastors who may not have a clear theological, let's say, like equilibrium understanding are swayed by this. Mm. And even conservative denomination like IMB, Southern Baptist, were pushing this in Bangladesh. And so if you are interested, any of the listeners, there is a DVD called Half Devil, Half Child. And you can get it on Amazon.com. It's an interview with missionaries as well as Muslims in Bangladesh when this was being pushed by the Southern Baptist missionaries. And, you know, some of the missionaries who were part of it or local pastors who were part of it, they they exposed it. And then there's an interesting dialogue between the interviewer and the uh, local Muslim priest. And he says it very clearly. I, I like his answer, even though he's in the wrong faith. He said, if you're Muslim, say you're Muslim. If you're Christian, say you're Christian. Don't tell me you're Muslim following Jesus. This is so deceptive. He said it very clearly. He did. And I think it's worth watching because it exposes this. And I I am thankful for uh, David Platt. When he became the president or the leader for IMB, he just cut that off. He defunded it. And I am thankful for that decision that he made on behalf of IMB. But these traces of this are even in, if if you're familiar with Perspectives Missions course, it's heavily loaded with this in chapter 14, lesson 14. The readings, almost all of them seem to promote this C5 movement. So just be aware of this because traces of this will be influencing even the Church of America. Yes. And you need to be aware of that. And it's got some real champions. There's a lot of people that are very vocally supportive of these types of strategies and efforts. I've seen many prominent articles like in Christianity Today. They held it in high regard. It was very glowing terms that they described it in. But I think we have to be very sober-minded and discerning as we're really thinking through what this looks like both overseas and here at home. Let's say that some members of our audience are listening to this and they're like, you know what, I'm a missions pastor or I'm excited, I'm heavily invested in in missions. How can I be more discerning on who I support? What, what are some practical things that they can consider or do? Sure. One, I'd become more familiar with this topic there's a book I recommend. It's fairly academic, but I think for missions pastors, it would be good. It's called Insider Movements, and the author is Jeff Morton, M-O-R-T-O-N. The other side, the one that promotes Insider Movement, they wrote the same a book with the same title, so don't confuse with that. That promotes it. He actually does an excellent job presenting both sides, and then he comes up with the reasons why this is against Scripture. The other resource I highly recommend, it's actually a series of videos and lectures by Jay Smith. So J-A-Y Smith. And he served over 20 years in England as a polemicist. So apologists defend Christian faith, polemicists attack the other faith. And in this case, he's been attacking Islam and he wins every debate because Quran is full of holes. And it's, it's not from our Lord, it's actually from from the enemy, System of Lies. And Jay Smith, he has produced videos. If you go to Fender Films, if you Google that, it will come up, P-F-A-N-D-E-R. And Fender is last name of a missionary, a German missionary in 1800s who was a polemicist. 
especially in working with the Muslims. Mm-hmm. Those are the two resources that I recommend. But again, as a missions pastor, please do interview, dialogue with your missionaries that you're supporting, and even ask them where they stand on this issue of contextualization. And most of them will be at one side or the other. And then you have to make your decision, do I want to support this? Especially as a church, if you disagree with that, then you don't want to be supporting. And this caused a few years back a huge group of denominations, Assembly of God, Southern Baptist, PCA, Presbyterians, held back the funds from Wycliffe Bible translators because of this Muslim-compliant translation. And then just recently, I think Wycliffe decided we're going to stay faithful to the translation. So a group may have come out of Wycliffe, and they're doing their own thing to promote this Bible for insight approach. Yeah, it seems like the strategy is bent on trying to minimize the burdens and barriers to coming to faith. So perhaps from a a right mindset, that's what kind of drives that thinking but as, as you talked about today, and as you talked about in the last podcast when you were talking about Korea, um, there is going to be suffering. There is going to be hardship. And I'm not trying to equate the hardship and suffering that uh, believers in, currently in Western nations will experience compared to those of believers coming to faith, converting to follow Christ in Muslim-majority countries. I'm not, I'm not equating those. It's certainly intense. But we are in a spiritual battle, and we will face suffering and hardship. And I do think that Christians around the world have some lessons to learn from people who have come to faith in really hard countries, because we're trying to prepare ourselves for suffering and hardship that might become more prevalent around us, which I think is likely to to occur. How would you, just as we start to wrap this, this session up, how would you encourage Christians to be faithful when the costs are becoming high? You know, it's, um, again, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He is the one who called us. He's the only one who laid down his life for us. We would be eternally separated from from the Father, from God, if it weren't for Christ. And our loyalty is only to him, and not even to our denomination or our cause or our, our mission, agency, vision, and goal, but it's only to Christ. And, um, you know, I want to share an example, a testimony from, from Korea, a pastor. But before I do that, I want to share with our listeners about what happened to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 on the third temptation. So on the third temptation, Satan says to Jesus and takes him up to the mountaintop. And he said, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus says to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And I, I think... For me, embedded in there is not only the fame and the riches of the world, but people groups. It's almost like Satan is saying, hey, if you worship me, you don't have to go through the cross. You can win the whole world. Mission accomplished. Go back Mm -hmm. to the Father. But there's a lie in there. You know, whether Satan is able to, he he cannot deliver the souls. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, no, I will go through it the hard way. Honor the Father, but preserve the mission and I'll accomplish it by surrendering my life to the cross. And I feel like insider movement is failing where Jesus won. We're trying to find the easiest way that the enemy offers so that there's no cost, neither to us nor to our disciples. Everything is done in an easy way, and we win. God wins, and we all go to heaven. Mm -hmm. 
as Jesus taught us over and over again, that we will be persecuted, that we will be handed over to kings and governors. He said that, and he's not going to lie. He's just painting a picture of what is to come. But he says, remain faithful. And so last week, I shared about Reverend Chu, who was one of the leading pastors who stood against Shinto compromise in the Japanese over six-year period of torturing him. He eventually died in prison. There is another pastor at the same time, Reverend Sun, and he also opposed Shinto worship. So they put him in prison from 1940 to 1945, tortured him. He never gave in. The war ended, Japanese left. And then during the communist uprising in 1950, he was killed by the communists. So eventually he died as a martyr. But while he was in prison, he stood his ground against Shinto worship. But a few years before that, while he was a teenager and the Japanese were already in our country and they took over all the school system. And as he was about to register to go to middle school, the principal who was Japanese told him, oh, before you can register, you have to bow at the Shinto shrine. And Reverend Sun, a young lad at the time, he said no. And the Japanese principal beat him. He was all bruised, clothes were torn. And he was sent back home and he came back home, all bruises. And his father, this is what he prayed. Lord, I thank you for giving this lowly servant son such honor to endure this trial. It is said that the more the beating, the stronger the iron becomes. In the days to come, beat my son with a bigger hammer and with more crushing force in order to prepare him for a greater purpose. Please do not spare him from the pain of your hammering until he becomes a worthy servant in your sight. What a prayer. No kidding. Reverend Sun's father was the first one to come to Christ in that village, so he was beaten up by his uncles and cousins and left for dead, and he he barely came back alive. But eventually, he won his family over to Christ, and he had such a resolute faith, and he understood the times, and he knew that this Japanese nation that came over to Korea is not going to leave anytime soon because the rest of the world forgot about us. And he said, they're not leaving anytime soon. We need to raise up men and women who would fear God and not fear the Japanese. And that's why he prayed, Lord, would you beat my son with a bigger hammer? We need fathers like this right now. We need to raise up with prayers like this, raise up sons and daughters who would not fear death, who would not compromise in any way. So there was one blessing in Reverend Sun's life. The other blessing was his wife, because when the Japanese put the Korean, these Christians or any Korean in prison, the food has to come from the family members. So his wife would deliver food every day to him and even clothing in the winter. And at this time, the Japanese, when they saw that the pastors were not recanting, when they were not compromising, they would bring in the wives or family members, but usually the wives, in front of the husbands who are being tortured, and either they would rape them or torture them in front of them. And so Reverend Sun's wife knew that her turn was coming. So a few days before the Japanese would call her, she, along with the food, she sent in this short message to her husband, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life, Revelations 2.10. And then she wrote these words, dear, you know these words, don't you? If you compromise, 
an exception to worship. You are not my husband. Your soul won't be saved either. Mm. And so a few days later, she was brought in front of him. They stripped her. They tortured her. And then she fainted because she could not withstand the beatings. And Reverend Son did not compromise. And we need to raise up daughters like this. The time may come, whether it's the Taliban or ISIS or whomever, that they would do that to us, to our wives and our daughters. And, you know, some pastors did recant. They did capitulate because they could not bear to see their wives being raped or tortured in front of them. But Reverend Son chose to honor Jesus. Mm. And I want to say this is the kind of faith that was planted in our people by the missionaries who came from America. And I, I pray that God would raise up the Church of America, redeem us, so that we can faithfully preach the gospel and raise up the local believers who are not compromised. And if we ourselves need to give up our lives, then so be it, because Jesus gave up his life for us. And I join you in that prayer. I pray that God would strengthen us and refine us and help us to have an eternal mindset that would be willing and able to go through those types of temporal challenges. Those are those are really hard just to think with and grapple with, but we do need a strength in church, and I pray that we would glean strength from testimonies such as you shared from Korea. I pray that we would learn from the testimonies and examples of faithful Christians in China, in the Muslim world, in Afghanistan right now, in Iran, where there's a powerful move of God going on. They are providing an example for us, a witness for us, and it's something that they're modeling. I hope that we can capture more of it and be strengthened together as one spiritual body across this globe. I can't thank you enough, James, for your time. You've really blessed our audience, but you've blessed me personally with this faithful perspective that you've shared, this gracious commentary that you've provided. I'm going to be pondering this for for days to come, a lot of the material we covered. You serve, I believe, with a ministry called the Crescent Project. If that's true, could you share a little bit about your ministry with them? What does that look like? Sure. Crescent Project, it is a ministry that is committed to equipping and training Christians and churches in America, but now across the world, to share the good news with Muslims. You know, right now there are about 1.8 billion Muslims, and we would just encourage, even if a million Christians here in America would share with one Muslim, that's awesome. Yeah. And so that's our goal. And if you go on our website, crescentproject.org, there's a HOPE conference. It's a free online conference coming up in October, but many different resources and testimonies. And um, there's uh, different teachings on how to answer questions that Muslims have. So, yes, please visit the website. That's wonderful. And on our last episode, we touched on this, but uh, you've written a book called Fear Not, Living a Life of No Regrets. How can our listeners get their hands on a copy? Yes, it's available on Amazon.com. So it's, it's a book, 52 chapters for 52 weeks. It's a devotional, weekly devotional. Um, it took me about 10 years to write. Started when we came back from the field. And because of the pandemic, thank God, he gave me enough time to finish that. My wife is also writing a book. It will be 12 chapters. She's the evangelist. She's, you know, I'm 
typical engineer, more of an introvert. <laughs> she, introvert. she was a cheerleader in high school. So how interesting oh. God connects an engineer with a cheerleader, but she's a people <laughs> person and she loves people. And so God has used her to bring so many Muslim women to Christ over there and even here. Mm. But she just started writing her book. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, besides praying for her efforts writing, are there any other ways that our audience, that we can be praying for you and your wife and your ministry? Yes, we, we have ESL ministry here in Leesburg that because of COVID, it's been moved out of the church building, but we want to bring it back into a formal setting where we can have in-person instruction for many of the immigrants. So over the last eight years or nine years of teaching, we've had over 700 students from 70 different nations. And that's right here in Leesburg, Virginia. Wow. And I'm sure where people are at, wherever you are, God is opening the door for the immigrants and the refugees to come. So reach out to them in that way. We also have a jail ministry. And then because of our experience in missions, my wife and I are invited to a lot of different churches and classes, conferences to speak at. So pray that the Holy Spirit would use our testimony and our teaching to build up the church, to raise up more laborers, and to see the kingdom of God advance powerfully. Well, you can pray for that, certainly. If any of our listeners wanted to learn more about you, to, to find out more about your ministry, how can they go about doing that? You can email me at James T. Cha, so T as in Tom, James T. Cha, C-H-A, at gmail.com. So if you have any questions, if you'd like to be, we do have prayer updates that go out from monthly to every quarterly, and then you can keep up with our ministry. And we would appreciate prayer. Absolutely. Well, that sounds wonderful. Well, James, thank you so much for all the time that you have shared with us. It's been very insightful, and we're profoundly grateful for all of it. So God bless you. God bless your ministry. And thanks for all that you are doing for the kingdom. Thank you. Thank you. And God bless you. All right. Take care, James. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us today for the Christian Emergency Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends about us and ask them to subscribe as well. To learn more about the Christian Emergency Alliance or financially invest in our ministry, visit us at www.christianemergency.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you again for listening and stand strong out there.